Well, back on Sunday, February the 6th, we had this passage, Luke 17, starting in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they look, or nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And from that point forward, Jesus has been teaching us about that subject, his favorite subject. His teaching has been kingdom-centric. We saw it in verses 20 through 21 about how the kingdom is invisible for the time being, that it will spread as heart by heart uh, repents of sin and puts their trust in the Lord. The kingdom will expand. And then in verses 22 through 37, Uh, we saw that one day the the invisible kingdom is going to become visible and that uh, day uh, is going to have some events that lead up to it. And so Jesus told us about that in verses 22 through 37. As we got into chapter 18, what we found is that there is going to be a temptation that as we wait on the Lord to return, a temptation for us to lose heart because life is not always easy for us as believers here on this earth. The way that we do not lose heart is by praying persistently to the Lord. And then in chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, we saw that you cannot get into the kingdom by trusting in your own goodness, your own good works, your own righteousness. And then last week, we saw that to enter the kingdom, you must be humble like a child, a simple faith, a sincere faith, a surrendered faith. And then we get this passage this morning about the rich young ruler. It also appears in Matthew and it appears in Mark. It's one of Jesus' more famous conversations, one of his more famous interactions. And it is an interaction that is also all about the kingdom of God. The conversation between Jesus and the young ruler in this text shows us how to inherit eternal life, the the sort of life that you will have if you are in the kingdom of God. When you read Matthew and when you read Mark, the actual encounter is placed in uh, a little bit of a a, a different spot in their narrative, in in their sequence of events. But Luke places it where he does on purpose because he uh, has a train of logic that he wants us to follow, right? The kingdom is invisible. One day it will be made visible. Pray persistently until that day comes. Reject self-righteousness. Rely on the mercy of God and His grace for salvation. Humble yourself like a child so that kingdom will belong to you. And then today, Luke places this passage here so that we can see how we inherit eternal kingdom life from this dialogue between Jesus and this young, rich, powerful man. And so Luke organized his uh, sequence of events in this way because he wanted his readers to have a section of the gospel where there is clear, concise teaching on the kingdom uh, from the Lord. And so three cannots I want us to see in this text this morning. Uh, Let's go ahead and read it first. Luke 18, starting in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. 
When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Father, we need you during this time. I need you, Lord, to be able to uh, preach accurately, to be able to get the message uh, across uh, in a way that's faithful to Uh, your word. And we trust, God, you will be faithful to your word uh, in in giving me the words to say, but also, Lord, to be with all of us this morning. We all have our Bibles open. We all sit before you. We want to hear from your word. We want to learn. We want to grow. We want to apply the word. We want to be transformed. And so we're going to need you if that's going to happen. We need your spirit this morning, Father. We do not do this alone. We do it together, and we do it with you. And so we pray, Lord, as we come before your word, You'd be faithful to it, that you would teach us, and that you would change us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we start this morning with this this rich young ruler approaching Jesus with a straightforward but profound question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? First of all, I think we can say that the rich young ruler comes with a better attitude than the fictional Pharisee in Jesus' parable a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there was a lot of pride in, in that man, right, who, who felt he was so much better than everyone else around him. But in this passage, while there certainly is a level of pride in this man's interaction with Jesus, the, the rich young ruler does seem to come with a, a general sense of understanding that he needs something from God that he does not have. He's a religious man, there's no doubt about that. The term ruler likely refers to the synagogue, and if that is the case, he is the guy that would have been in charge of picking songs, uh, psalms to be read during the service at the synagogue, passages of scripture to be read. He would be in charge of uh, who is going to teach on certain Sabbath days. He would be in charge of the building and making sure that it doesn't fall apart. And for him to hold that position, he would have been one of the most respected men uh, in his society. He would have been known by everyone for being moral and for having a a host of religious achievements. And so his resume spiritually would have been impressive to the eyes of, of the common people. They would have looked at him and said, this guy's got it together. And so he comes to Jesus with what seems to be a pretty honest question. Like I said, I think there's an understanding of some need that he has before God. doesn't seem to be a situation like when the Pharisees often come and interact with Jesus and they ask him some question just because they want to trap him, right? They want him to say something, to put a foot wrong so they can go, you know, aha, we, we, we got you. You're not really the Son of God. You're not who you say you are. Uh, this is not, in, in this man, it does not seem to be an attempt to invalidate Jesus in any way. 
He's coming with a real sincere question. He is seeking, and what he's seeking is eternal life. For the Jewish people, and for us as Christians, eternal life is about more than how long life is. So when you think of eternal life, you go, okay, that's forever life. That's life that's going to go on forever. And that is true, but it's so much more than simply living forever. Eternal life speaks to a quality of living where you have a knowledge of the Lord and you are fully known by the Lord and as a result you have peace in your life. And as a result, you experience God's blessings in your life. You have an assurance of God's love for you in your life. You have uh, secure hope in the Lord. Another way to say it would be this. Eternal life is the sort of life you live when you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's the sort of life that you live when you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so, if you are a believer this morning, you have eternal life now. Eternal life is not something that you're going to get in the future. It's something you have now. Now, it's not going to be fully realized until the future, right? Because in the future, we're not going to be battling with sin anymore. And we're going to be purely connected to God the way that Adam and Eve were before their sin in the garden. The, the, the eternal life that we look to in the future, it's going to be fully realized when Jesus returns and his people are resurrected to live with him on the new earth forever. But it's one of those things where it is already but not yet. It's already in the sense that we experience the blessings of eternal life now. We experience the blessings of abundant kingdom life now as believers who know the Lord through the blood of His Son, Jesus. For all this man's spiritual achievements, for all of his spiritual accomplishments, for all of the the great and grand position that he has in his society, there is concern in him that he does not have eternal life. And there is expectation that Jesus is the one who can tell him how to get it. And you have to say that he's come to the right place. John 17.3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God through His Son. So with that being the case, this man has come to the correct source as he comes to Jesus. And yet we get a little clue right away that all might not be right in this man's understanding. Because he calls Jesus good teacher, and Jesus responds in verse 19 by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some people have tried to take this response from Jesus and argue that Jesus here is saying he is not holy, that he is not God. They, they have uh, tried to say that in, in saying no one is good except God alone, he's actually denying his own perfect righteousness and he is denying his own divinity. But that is ridiculous because of all the claims to divinity we have from Jesus in the Gospels. In John 5.18, John says the Jews were trying to kill Jesus because he was purposely equating himself to the Father. He was making himself equal to the Father in the way that he was talking, and that made them want to kill him. In John 8.58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. So, I existed. I, I predate Abraham, is what Jesus was saying. Plus, the I am is hard to ignore, isn't it? Right? Before Abraham was, I am the great I am. 
Or in John 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. That's pretty clear. So Jesus is not denying his divinity here and contradicting everything else he has said before this. But what he knows is that this guy has no way of knowing that he is God in the flesh. This guy has no way of knowing that he is the divine Lord of heaven come to earth in human flesh. And by calling Jesus good, this man was really connecting Jesus to God. And so in Jesus questioning him, it's almost as if the Lord is like, are you really ready to do that? Are you really ready to equate me with God? And if you are, are you ready to forsake everything and obey me? Which is exactly where Jesus is about to go with him. He's calling on the man to not throw around this word good lightly and this idea of goodness lightly. And he is putting his finger on the reality that this man doesn't seem to really understand the word good, which is going to be revealed in what is about to happen in the conversation. So uh, Jesus responds further by, in verse 20, bringing up the law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the heart of God's moral law. You know the commandments, and clearly this man would, right? This is some of the first things this guy would have learned in his life would be the Ten Commandments of the Lord. So you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And with a straight face, showing us that he doesn't really understand the idea of pure goodness, with a straight face the guy goes, all these I've kept from my youth. Now we know that can't be true right? We know that there's no way this man has been sinless in, in all of these commandments since his youth, which shows us again a distorted idea of goodness. In his mind, almost a good try, good effort is uh, equal to moral goodness, moral perfection. This is what you would call self-delusion, right? He has deluded himself into thinking that he actually has moral perfection and how he deals with his neighbors from his parents all the way to the rest of the world. He is convinced that in his efforts, he is without fault. Notice Jesus did not quote any of the commandments that have to do with how we treat God. Doesn't even go there. He only lists out the horizontal commandments that deal with how we treat the rest of humanity. The part of the law you could summarize by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus could easily spend some time picking apart this man's false belief that he has no sin in his dealings with his neighbors, but he just bypasses that and goes right for the jugular. Verse 22, Jesus says, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. What Jesus has done here is he has left the horizontal commandments and he has gone to the vertical commandments. And he has gone straight to the very first vertical commandment, which is Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. This is, this is where God's moral law begins. It begins with the issue of idolatry. It begins with the issue of not putting any false idols in front of the Lord or beside the Lord. Now, Jesus doesn't quote chapter and verse. He doesn't go, well, son, Exodus 20, verse 3 says. He doesn't do that. But isn't that what he's getting at? 
The man has a little g God in his life that he is bowing down to and that he is worshiping. And that little g God is money. And so when Jesus says to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me, what he is calling on him to do is to repent of the sin of idolatry, to turn away from that sin, and to show fruits of that repentance by selling all he has, distributing it to the poor, and then following Jesus. This is what Jesus is calling on him to do. Repent of your idolatry, come and follow me. It brings us to our first point this morning, our first cannot. You cannot inherit eternal life unless you agree with God about your sin. You cannot inherit eternal life unless you agree with God about your sin. Jesus is using the law to bring this man to an understanding of his sin before God. He is using the law to show the rich young ruler that he is not righteous. He has a massive idol in his life that is keeping him from surrendering to the Lord in obedience, that is barring him from eternal life. Last week we talked about childlike faith and how it is simple and it is sincere and it is surrendered. And that's what Jesus is calling him to here. He doesn't say to him, sell everything you have because salvation is earned through charitable giving. That's not Jesus' point. He tells the man to sell everything he has because what the man needs to do is to humble himself. He needs childlike faith. He needs a childlike abandonment when it comes to his earthly priorities and his treasures so he could receive the kingdom and inherit eternal life. He needed to agree with God about his idolatry and show fruits worthy of repentance by obeying Jesus' command and trusting in Jesus. This guy thought he was good to go. He felt he was a law keeper. Whatever he expected Jesus to say in response to his question about eternal life, it doesn't seem like he was anticipating Jesus pointing him to the law for self-examination. He probably thought Jesus would see what everybody else sees. A man of moral fortitude, a man of spiritual prowess. Maybe he expected Jesus to say, just keep it up. That's what you need to do to inherit eternal life. But instead, Jesus uses the law to show the man how unholy he really is, how sinful he really is. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Which means the law is like a window. Right, We've got a big window here behind uh, the blinds that we have pulled down. If I was to take a sizable rock and chuck that thing at that window, it might hit it just at one spot, but that one point of contact would, could shatter the entirety of the window. Right, the Same thing with a mirror. This is the way the law of God is. Break it at one point, you shatter the entire thing. And that's what Jesus is showing the man. If you have failed the law on the point of idolatry, then you have failed the entirety of the law. No matter how well you think you have treated your neighbors, you have sinned before God that needs to be dealt with. And so in verse 23, you see that the man becomes very sad because he is extremely rich. What Jesus has done is he has put a a choice in front of the man, hasn't he? He's looked at the man and he has said, look, you can be poor in this world, and have eternal life, 
Or you can be rich in this world and impoverished in the next. And not have eternal life. And not be in the kingdom. And the man becomes sad when he is confronted with this choice. And ultimately, he opts for the latter. He opts for, I'll be rich now, no matter what comes after this. He becomes sad because what the law has done is it has revealed his own sinfulness and the fact that he cannot have his cake and eat it for eternity as well, that has devastated him. The reality that he cannot live for his own pleasure and God's pleasure has devastated him. He's going to have to choose. And so he made his choice. He'll be rich and he'll be sad. His sadness is not like the sadness of the tax collector in Luke 18, 13. If you go back to that parable, you remember the tax collector is standing far off. He will not even lift his eyes up to heaven. He beats on his breast, showing in a very, uh, a very um, emotive way, right? Showing the Lord, something's wrong with my heart. And I need you to take mercy on me, a sinner. That is my only hope. That was the sort of sorrow that we saw from the man in Luke 18, 13. That's not what we see in this man. This man has what we would call worldly sorrow. He's sad about the consequences of his sin, but he's not sad enough to repent. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If the man had godly sorrow, godly grief over his sin, then he would have repented and he would have left saved. He would have left with the challenge of, okay, well now I have to figure out how to give my money away. I have to figure out how to be obedient to Jesus in this. I have to talk to Jesus to see what comes next. He's the one calling the shots in my life now, so I'm going to do what he told me to do and see what comes next. He, he would have done all of that and he would not have had regret because he would have known he had laid his hand on the greatest treasure that you could ever lay your hand on, which is the inheritance of eternal life. But instead, he just becomes sad. He has worldly grief with no repentance. And since there is no repentance, there is no eternal life. He is sad, he is lost, and he is rich. We need to keep going, but I do just want to say, this is a passage that shows us why we must use the law in evangelism. If you have a gospel presentation, which by the way, we have to, let's, let's not assume that. Okay, let's back up and say, you should have a gospel presentation in your back pocket, ready to go at all times. Like if somebody walked up to you and said, I got four minutes to live, tell me how to believe in Jesus. You ought to be able to get the gospel to them in four minutes. The gospel is so deep and, 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 and broad and, and profound, we can spend our entire lives talking about it, but you can explain it to somebody in a way they can understand and respond to in, in three to four minutes. And so, number one, you ought to have a gospel presentation in your back pocket if you're serious about the work of being an evangelist. And if you don't, then find one immediately, right? Um, however, if you do have a gospel presentation and it does not include the law, the Ten Commandments, then I would say go back to the drawing board, start over. People have to have an awareness of their sin if they're going to have an awareness of their need for a Savior, 
If they have no awareness of their sin, they will not understand why you are telling them they need a Savior. The law is a schoolmaster, Paul says in Galatians, that leads us to Christ. The law is like a teacher that shows us our need for Jesus. Most people do not walk around comparing themselves to heaven. They walk around comparing themselves to heathens, right? Most people walk around and they play the game of comparison, but they don't look at people that they consider to be more moral than them. They don't look at people that they consider uh, to, to be um, you know, more virtuous than them. They tend to look at people that they consider to be less moral than them, less virtuous, less able to kind of keep it together. They look at them and they go, well, I'm not as bad as them. I'm better than them. And surely whatever sin I have in my heart, well, God knows my heart and he'll overlook it and God will let me into heaven because I'm a pretty good person. This is the game of comparison most play and that is the result that it leads them to. So when you come in to share the gospel with them and you say they need to repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ, many of them are going to look at you and say, what sin? What sin is so serious that it would require a churchy word like repentance to even be coupled with it? And that is where we use the law. Just like Jesus does in this text. This man has a distorted view of his own goodness. So Jesus here says, you know the commandments. He goes straight to the law. The law will shatter a person's idea of their goodness. You start going down the list and asking them, have you committed idolatry have you always honored your mother and father have you ever stolen have you ever coveted have you ever took the lord's name in vain pretty quickly the law will show a person their guilt before god and will put them in a position where they need to either repent and have salvation without regret or they simply have worldly grief and they go away sad but at least they are making a decision with the facts God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. does not reveal someone's sin to them. They need to see their sin to really understand the depths of God's love and sending a Savior to die for them. So if you regularly share your faith and you're not using the law to help someone see their sin, you need to work it in. Let's keep going. Number two, second point. Second, cannot. You cannot inherit eternal life unless you agree with God about your sin. Number two, you cannot inherit eternal life unless you submit to the sovereign lordship of Jesus. What does it mean to understand Christ as Lord? Let's talk about that for a moment. First of all, we would say to say Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus is God. Okay, to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus is God. He is Almighty God. He is the sustainer of everything. He is omnipresent everywhere at once. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He is all-powerful. He forgives sin. He receives worship. He is absolute authority over everything. He is one with the Father. All of this shows us the divine nature of Christ. In Hebrews 1.3, the Bible says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is God. You cannot submit to Christ as Lord if you deny Christ as God. Secondly, to say Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus is sovereign. In John 10.17 and 18, 
Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Only a sovereign Lord determines when he dies and has the authority to take his life up again. He is the only one who has this sort of authority. John 5, and 23, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. It's an amazing statement by Jesus. I have all authority to judge, and that has been given to me by the Father in order that all would honor me, the Son. That's what Jesus is saying there. The sovereign Christ has been given all authority so that he would receive the worship that he deserves. Worship he deserves because he is sovereign. And if all that is not enough, in the final judgment, the sovereignty of Christ will be evident when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him as Lord. And then thirdly, to say Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus is Savior. Even though he is God in the flesh and he is the sovereign ruler of the earth, he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the sovereign Lord, who is God in the flesh, surrendered everything on our behalf, came to earth, died as a substitute in our place. And then proved his lordship once and for all, rising from the grave as the victor over death. Only the Lord can defeat death. Romans 1, Paul says, beginning his letter to the Romans, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through the resurrection, Jesus proved he was the Son of God and proved he is Christ our Lord. So when you put all this together, we understand what it means to submit to the Lordship of Christ. You agree with God about your sin, you repent of your sin, and you submit to Jesus as Lord. You bow your knee to him as God, you bow your knee to him as sovereign, you bow your knee to him as Savior. You submit to his divinity, you submit to his sovereignty, and you submit to him as the only way of salvation. And this submission to Christ as Lord means we give up on a life of worshiping whatever we desire to worship, doing whatever we desire to do, hoping that in the end our efforts will be enough to pardon us with God. We take that works righteous mentality and we crucify it and we say no more will I put any trust in that. We trade in that joyless life for one where Jesus gets our worship, we give up control of our lives to him as the sovereign and we fully trust in him as the Savior. But to embrace Christ as Lord in this way means we're rejecting our former way of life. And that's what this rich man is not willing to do. He loved his sin, he loved his money, he loved his control, he loved life on his terms. And so he is sad, but he is not sad enough to repent and submit to the lordship of the Christ who is standing in front of him. And I I pray with all sincerity, that is not you today. I hope that you are not clinging to a life 
that you think you have to have in sadness. I hope you will agree with God about your sin and turn from it and submit to Jesus as Lord. As God, as sovereign, as Savior, as Lord. Because that is where joy is found. You don't have to be sad this morning. You don't have to be sad like the man in this text. You can have joy. It's the disposition of the Lord that He wants joy for your life. Joy is found in repentance and submission and in worshiping and glorifying Jesus. It's what He designed you to do. Now let's wrap it up by by looking at Jesus' commentary on the scene. Jesus sees the worldly sadness of this man. And he says, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? So difficult, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That is actually a saying that Jesus probably got from Persia. It was a Persian saying that was super popular that said, you know, it, let, let, let's say I, I asked you to come over and help me lift you know, some super heavy piece of furniture and we try it with two of us and we fail and, and you go, man, it's easier to get an elephant through the eye of a needle than to do this. That, that was a saying that was used in Persia and it probably made its way over to Israel and they didn't say elephant because elephants weren't walking around in Israel. Instead they said camel because that was the biggest animal that they laid their eyes on on a regular basis. And so it was a Persian saying with an Israelite twist on it and he uses it here. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And those listening to this say, well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? You got this this rich young ruler. This guy's got all the prestige and power and privilege you can want in a society. He's got an amazing spiritual resume. You're sending him away sad? And then you're saying that it's impossible for rich people to be saved, pretty much. People have wealth to be saved. Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus responds by stating his point with the camel proverb plainly. If salvation were left purely up to the efforts of man, salvation would be impossible. I don't care if you're rich, poor, or somewhere in between. There's no rich man who can enter the kingdom of God on their own. There's no man, regardless of his net worth, who can enter the kingdom of God on his own. If anybody wants to enter the kingdom of God and inherit eternal life, they must give up on their sinful priorities. They must come to God on His terms. They must repent of sin and submit to Christ as Lord. And the reality is, nobody's going to do that unless God intervenes with His saving grace. He's got to open up their eyes. He's got to call them. He has to give them the gift of faith. But I think all this is especially difficult when you factor in an abundance of money. It's a little less daunting to give Jesus everything you have when you don't have very much. But when you're rich, money whispers lies to you to make you think you don't actually need Jesus or anybody else. An abundance of money encourages you to believe the lie that you're autonomous in a way that poverty does not. And we see that in the rich man's unwillingness to give up his idol, which is the almighty dollar, or in his case, the almighty shekel. You know what I mean? Now, I love Peter's reaction to this. After Jesus says what is impossible with man is possible with God, 
Because God in His grace will intervene. God can save despite the fact that riches create an idolatrous hurdle to submission to Christ. Peter goes, hey, we left our homes and followed you. I, I love that from Peter. He's like, wait, wait, wait a second. You're saying you got to give everything up to follow you? We did that. So what about us? Now, a lot of times in the Gospels, Peter shoots off at the mouth. He gets rebuked. Not this time. Jesus affirms him. Jesus is like, yes. And truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. He affirms him. He's saying, you're right, Peter. You did leave everything. And there's nobody who left everything, who left their home and their spouse and their family for the sake of the kingdom, that's not going to receive it all back. You're going to get blessings in this life and you will have the inheritance of eternal life in the age to come. And this is really where the rich young ruler failed in his math. He listened to Jesus and he thought, this life I've got, it's worth more than the life Jesus is offering me. And Jesus is saying, no, the eternal life of the kingdom makes this life look like peanuts, like a vapor, like a mist. Which brings us to our final point this morning, our final cannot. You cannot inherit eternal life without letting go of the present life. When you trade the treasures of this earth for the treasures of eternity, you're taking a very small minuscule amount of finite wealth that you've been able to get your hands on and you're trading it in for the greatest wealth in all of existence the wealth of eternal reward in heaven jesus describes the wealth of heaven like a treasure in a field or like a pearl of great value in, in two parables in matthew 13 he says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. In both of those parables, once somebody sees the value of the treasure in front of them, they'll, they'll give up anything in order to put their hands on it. And that's what somebody will do for the kingdom if they have the eyes of faith. And so once again, it all comes down to faith. In order to give up the treasure of this world for the treasure of eternal life, you have to have faith and trust that Jesus is telling the truth. You have to believe God when he says to us, this life is a vapor, and that his eternal kingdom is filled with the greatest treasures, including the pinnacle of all the treasures, which is Christ himself. So if the rich young ruler believed Jesus, he would have obeyed Jesus, he would have submitted to Jesus. I think that he may have believed in the intellectual sense in what Jesus was saying, but his heart still believed his money had more value than what Jesus was offering. More value than eternal life itself. And so I've got to ask you this morning, what do you believe? Do you agree with God about your sin? And do you believe Jesus is a Lord worthy of submission? And do you believe that the promises of eternal life are worth more than what you've gathered for yourself in this world?
Because if your answers are yes and yes and yes, then praise God. Recognize those are only your answers because God has, in His grace, opened up your eyes to see the worth of the kingdom. And like the people in the parable, you have given up everything for the sake of it. So if your answers are yes and yes and yes, glory be to God. There's no boasting that we can do. But if your answers are not yes and yes and yes, you need to pray to the Lord, you need to ask Him for the grace to see, to understand things for how they really are. The grace to be able to put the proper price on things. The grace to recognize your sin, to see Christ as Lord, the grace of being given a holy desire to lay everything down for the sake of knowing Him. You don't have to become sad this morning. There's joy in knowing the Lord. And more than that, we can agree with Jesus in John 17, 3, right? That this is eternal life. To know God through His Son. And so there's joy and there's eternal life in knowing God through His Son. Put the right price on it this morning. It is infinitely more valuable than anything you're clinging to that is keeping you from Him. So open your hand and give it up. Repent and put your trust in Christ. Father God, we thank you for the, the, the text this morning that um, has taken us down the gospel road. It has taken us down the gospel road of seeing who your son is, being reminded of who we are as sinners when we are faced with the reality of your law. It's taken us down the gospel road once again this morning of seeing the infinite worth of the kingdom, seeing the value of eternal life. And, and so uh, I pray, Father, that for some this morning who maybe have drifted from their first love, that we're reminded once again this morning, nothing is worth what you were worth. And so we should be willing to give everything up for the sake of of the pearl of the kingdom, the pearl of eternal kingdom life. And so I pray that we would do that this morning, Lord. And uh, I also pray for brothers and sisters this morning who are living with uh, a, a calculated abandon, Father. And they can honestly look themselves in the mirror and say, I'm not perfect, but my answers are yes, yes, and yes. I'm living for the Lord. I've given everything up for the Lord. And I just pray, Father, that you would help these brothers and sisters to press on. That the temptation to sin and the temptation to give up in suffering and not persevere, that these temptations, Lord, would be overcome. And that, um, and that Father, your power would win out in their life. And that you would finish in them what you have began. And we're confident you'll bring it to completion. And then, Lord, there are others who just may not know you. They may be like the rich man in this passage. And, Lord, I, I pray that while they may be like the rich man in this passage initially, they would not be like him in the end. They would not be sad. They would not be sad because they leave choosing a short lifetime of riches knowing that in the end they may reap an eternity's worth of punishment and separation from you. I pray, Lord, they would have salvation without regret and that godly grief would produce real repentance in them this morning. So draw, Lord, the unsaved, people who do not know you, to yourself. 
and that they would jump over every wall and throw every hurdle to the side, counting you as having surpassing worth. They would give it all up, Lord, to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.